big red recording button and we'll start gathering stuff and I'll play the intro and then we'll just hop right in. Sounds good. Nice and loosey-goosey. All right, here we go. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. radiocom Well, well, what have we here? Welcome to the wonders of Thedas. Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren, and we have many guests on the show with us today. Uh, let's go down the list. Uh, we have with us uh, Leona. Hello. We have uh, Andy Klosky. How we doing, all? And we have, uh, finally returning, we have Toby. Greetings. Oh, and sneaking up behind me. Uh, is our, another uh, illustrious co-host, Jessica. I mean, I'm not really here today because I wanted to make sure we had enough room for everybody to say what they wanted to say, but uh, hello everyone out there in podcast land. I'll catch you next episode. Have a good time today. All right. Thanks, dear. We'll talk to you later. Okay, your cupcake is downstairs. Oh, yeah, cupcakes, yes. I have cupcakes Delective. waiting for me downstairs. <laughs> We have this great little now place. I'm in, <laughs> we have this great little place in town that uh, does uh, just vegan bakery stuff, which uh, which means Jessica can have all of it. <laughs> Ooh! All right, I'm excited. I'm getting pampered today. Anyway, uh, welcome to the One Is a Thetis podcast, where we talk about Dragon Age. Uh, welcome to episode 56, where we're talking about a topic that I can tell from looking at the number of votes we collected is a very, very exciting episode. It blew all out of the other, all the other topics out of the water for our poll with like 26 votes and everybody else got votes in the single digits. So I, I think we know what we're talking about today. Oh, yeah. Uh, everyone else excited? I am. I'm very excited. Fantastic. It's a good one. Today we'll be talking about using Dragon Age's canon in your role-playing game. Uh, we're going to see... Uh, but before that, we're going to have to uh, do our obligatory opening of the Codex. You can ask me questions if you like. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but... Oh, good. Thank you. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the Codex. We've only got a couple of questions to get to, and then we got plenty of other stuff to talk to about uh, after that. Uh, but we'll go ahead and jump right into it. And goodness, I hope I don't butcher this person's name. Um, uh, but uh, our couple, our two questions for today come from uh, Romulo uh, through our Facebook page. Thank you so much for sending questions. We always appreciate it. And uh, these are some good clarification questions to get to. Uh, first question that Romulo sent in was, I don't quite understand the dual weapon talent. If I have two bastard swords, does that mean I can do 4d6 plus 2 points of damage, combining the damage of the two of them? It seems a little overpowered. I have a character in my group who can do it, and I decided to reduce it in half for the secondary bastard sword attack because he was level 2 and is already capable of doing devastating damage. Am I doing this right? Do you have thoughts about that? Well, definitely some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It definitely seems like he is accurate. He does not quite understand the dual weapon talent. 
I think that's fair. But the best way that I've come to understand it is in practice, you don't actually get that second attack until you're at master level. Uh, up until when yes. you're a novice and journeyman, you're only either getting a bonus to your attack rolls or a defense bonus in melee. Basically, you're parrying or using that uh, using that offhand weapon to feint. Uh, journeyman lets you, you know, kind of take advantage of the situation where you get the lightning attack as a cheaper stunt. But it's not until you're a master level of swordsman that you can actually, you know, get an attack. And even then, it has to be done as a minor action. So your level two character here is totally not following rules as written. That's, that is correct. They should only be attacking once and only with the primary weapon, primarily using the secondary weapon to get a bonus to attack or defense when they activate the, uh, the talent. Uh, Liana, it looks like you wrote some notes down. Would you like to, do you want to go through them or did we cover them? Uh, you basically covered it except for the only, the only other thing I would add is that if he's got, if your character has two bastard swords going, his strength has to be a four. Because that second weapon, you have to add two to the minimum strength required for the offhand. Yes. Uh, and if I recall correctly, you also uh, still only get to deal, I think, half your strength in da- uh, as a bonus on to damage? Sec- on, the, on the second weapon, yes. yeah. When you're attacking with that second one, it's not the 2d6 plus 1 plus strength. It's half strength. Okay. That sounds about right. Yeah, for a level for a four in in strength for at a at a level one character, plus having a decent dexterity for the for to actually get the dual weapon style, yeah, you've got to be really doing some heavy min maxing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's possible, but not very likely. Fair enough. Uh, well, we'll hop on to uh, Romulo's second question, which is uh, the other uh, is about looting. How do you handle it? Do you let PCs carry all the weapons they find? How do you pick up that much money? Uh, how do you pick how much money they will find in enemy corpses? I think there's something of a disconnect, uh, perhaps here. That mm-hmm. um, I, I actually just started another playthrough of Dragon Age Two. Uh, I got an itch for it uh, uh, a little bit ago, so I'm working my way through that. And when playing the video games, you have the tendency, oh, pick up all, you know. Just grab whatever loot's there, and then whenever you're back at Skyhold or a merchant or what have you, just selling everything off. Within the tabletop sphere, that seems to be a very minority amount of tables that do that, where we're picking up every every last short sword and dagger and then trying to cash them all in. If your group enjoys that, that's great. But by and large... I find that most groups have more fun with the plot, with the adventures, and kind of hand-waving away, oh, you know, I'm carrying around 14 short swords and and what have you. If you're really Mm -hmm. worried about encumbrance rules, I mean, they're in there, but at the same time, are we are we really being heroes when we're micromanaging, you know, every, you know, every last dagger that we're that we come across? Mm-hmm. I know from my experience, my DM would always would say things like, yeah, they're carrying swords and daggers and whatever, but honestly, the stuff you've got's better, and for all your trouble, you're going to get like a handful of copper. So just, mm-hmm. it, he made it not worth all it. Right. That's good. The, um, <clears throat> the loot 
could be you know done in a sort of slightly abstract way where you know what you're you're not just getting coins you're getting you know rings and you know, this that and the other and um you know you can roll a few d's that's what i do let them roll a few d's so you get that much bronze or whatever i mean one thing i um i introduced for a bit of flavor was the um the loot and trash stuff from dragon age 2 you know like trade rope is worth free <laughs> bronze or a gold stone yeah, exactly and i just um I'd have my players sort of draw a card deck, and then I'd uh, <laughs> tell them what they got, you know, um, um, just for a bit of um, flavour. And uh, it's not it's very rarely worth anything, but uh, as I say, Dragon Age 2 had uh, free rope as uh, as trash, so I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll insert a bit of that as well. <laughs> and that's not to say that if you don't want to reward them, you know, with, oh, you know, that brigand over there has a has a really nice silver ring with a with an engraving on it. You know that that sort of thing stands out a little more, and you know is a lot more memorable than oh, you found fifteen short swords that you can sell for two silvers total, and you know a handful of a handful of copper pieces. You know, giving something giving something tangible as a reward that they can then sell and have interactions with. You know, maybe that ring is a signet ring. Maybe that ring, you know, leads to leads to some other adventure. So, um, make your loot matter. For sure. What are we gonna do with all this horn bomb? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for the Iron Bull. Apparently, who's the Iron yeah. Bull? He'll be really happy when mm-hmm. you meet him. <laughs> But yeah, I think that that covers most of the ways to do it. Sometimes you can personalize it or maybe even the treasures that you hand out, like that signet ring might belong to somebody and somebody might recognize it when you go to try and sell it. You might uh, just after every encounter, maybe if the PCs take some time and maybe roll particularly good on perception searching, you might pull out the table of treasure categories in the back of the core in the back of the core book and be like, 2d6 uh, times 10 silver pieces. Why not? You can keep it nice and simple, or you can personalize it. Uh, for carrying things, I I don't usually think about it too hard, or um, if we run to be like really loosey-goosey with it, might uh, pre-calculate, like if you to- took all the items that these characters were carrying and you went and sold them anyway, as like, like you mentioned, Toby, like like trash items, then let's see, or like what was left over, a little bit scraps and bits that you could maybe sell as like raw materials. This encounter is essentially worth flugy dollars. One way I've tended to think about that is is also in terms of what encumbrance actually is. You know, people, mm-hmm. an individual can carry an inordinate amount of weight if it's properly distributed across your body. You know, if uh, they think about our soldiers now going over and, you know, they're wearing X amount of body armor and their their kit, uh, their everyday carry is a certain amount. And it's extraordinarily heavy, but they're able to carry it because it's distributed properly. If you have someone that's literally trying to carry around a laundry basket full of weaponry and fight effectively... That, that strains credulity to me. In that, that, in that sort of situation, the best uh, the best rule I've I've kind of come across is is it more than a goat? You can carry a goat, <laughs> you know, and not be too encumbered because they're relatively little. You put it up on your shoulders and life is good. Um, if it's more than a goat, you're encumbered. Minus twos. <laughs> I I like this. I would like to subscribe to this publication. 
If you're a particularly burly character, you can maybe carry a goat and a half. <laughs> I'm liking where this is going. All right. So you heard it here. Uh, you heard it here, Romulo. Uh, goats. Just just keep goats in mind. All right. Well, thank you, of course, Romulo. Uh, I want to say mores uh, <laughs> through our Facebook page. Thank you for the question. And, of course, to those of you out there, if you have a question about the Dragon Age RPG, whether it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, anything at all, Send a message to podcast at gmail.com. You can send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, or SoundCloud accounts, or you can send a personal message to Cot or The Protector or Healer Puff on the Green Running forums, or send a message to Cot or Lease on the D20 radio forums. One of those is me. Oh, man. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. I, I get exhausted listening to you read that every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it's kind of fun. I've, I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it at this point. Um, I'll spare you the next one, but because we're skipping <clears throat> over the distant verses today, because we haven't gotten anything to show for it, at least this time, I'll just mention that all those same channels that I just mentioned, if you've got some custom content that you'd like to share, feel free to send it to us and we'll uh, mention it on the show. But I do believe we've got, let's see, we've got some very important stuff to talk about today. Uh, let's see, we've got to pull out the good book and discuss the canon. Specifically, uh, the Chant of Light, uh, the unabridged edition. We're going to be one of those folks uh, as we hop in here into the main topic. Is it Today's topic is a unique one for this RPG uh, and any other RPG that is based off of a specific franchise. The Dragon Age RPG is one of those many RPGs that are based off a specific world, like A Song of Ice and Fire or the Expanse RPG, which is coming later, later, I think next year. But uh, this presents a unique set of challenges and considerations that our other RPGs don't have. Uh, just as many RPGs like the sister RPGs Fantasy Age and Modern Age are setting neutral. They don't have an expected setting. A Dragon Age is very well established, uh, with adoring fans crafting their own characters in fiction every day. Uh, several games, novels, and comics, and an RPG are all available. Imagine that. There's also a movie and a web series. Oh, that movie's so good. The movie is so good. I watch it often. Yeah, sometimes it's just, uh, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's good to just pop it on and feel great yep. about Cassandra. Last I checked, it was still on Hulu. So if anybody's got Hulu, check out Dawn of the Seeker. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, totally. Everyone, Dawn of the Seeker, get to it. But um, regarding the um, regarding this topic, I think it is, as you just said, Ren, it's good to think about other other games um, to a certain extent, you know, so um, like the ones that don't have you know, your classic D&D where it's pretty much made up, you know. Um, it's very easy for the GM to change. He wants to say the name, he can invent one. Um, the problem with those sorts of backgrounds is they, they lack depth, really. And um, the, the opposite of that, of course, would be something where nearly every player knows the background. So say something like Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a lot of depth, that has the immersion. <clears throat> the problems there are, of course, um, contradicting canon. So... Um, everyone knows, you know, uh, Frodo's going to dump the um, the ring <laughs> in Mount Doom. Um, so if you start 
you know, killing off Frodo. Um, you're basically into almost an alternative history mode, and uh, you know, it seems to me Sabayas will lose a sense of immersion. Um, and it's interesting how you know, games companies over the years with a license for Lord of the Rings dealt with it. You know, so back in the 80s, Iron Crown Enterprises set the game world a thousand years before the Lord of the Rings. Um, and Decipher got the license, they said it during Lord of the Ring, and now Cubicle 7 have said it post-Hobbit, pre-War of the Ring, you know, that sort of 50 years before the War of the Ring. Um, and I mean, it's me that Dragon Age is unique in the sense that each player <laughs> may well, if they played the computer games, each player is their own individual canon. And this is, <laughs> this is the great strength of our game uh, in that you know, it, it, it re players can really be immersed. They, they were involved in creating that. Um, but it's also a, a problem in the sense that if you contradict a player's canon, um, again, they can feel, well, this isn't my world, this isn't the world that I constructed. Um, you know, if Alistair is king, whereas I, I put an aura on the throne, then, you know, there's a slight uh, difference, isn't there, between, you know, one person's canon and another, uh, which is, of course, why um, Green Ronin set the game before Dragon Age Origins, um, where you still have to be a little bit careful because you could change what happens during the Fifth Blight. You know, for example, you could kill Alistair uh, in the campaign or um, Altegan. You know what I mean? You could conceivably could. And you could say at the outset, oh, to your players, you know, this is, you're going to be the heroes of the Fifth Blight. You know, I'm changing canon and so on. But I, I prefer, personally, to um, keep players' individual canon as much as I can. Um, but as I say, what, drag, but what makes Dragon Age unique in this respect is that each player if they played the computer games, has constructed their own canon. That is a fair good point. And uh, we definitely have a lot of discussions about that at my tables when uh, I mention that the, dwar the hero of Ferelden is a dwarf castless mm. uh, who is heading the Grey Wardens. And pretty much everybody around my table is like, nuh-uh, <laughs> the Grey Warden. <laughs> the, the Warden commander is the Queen of Ferelden, uh, and she is at home with her hubby Alistair, and it's great. Don't you ruin this for me. <laughs> Queens of Ferelden. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, Dragon Age has got specific names, it's got places, it's got uh, a history, a timeline. And um, a lot of that is malleable, and then some of that is, can end up being contradictory and uh, have so uh, lots of parallel universes running along with each other. Um, but because it's also got a lot of fiction and a lot of extra media, it also has uh, a lot of things that players can already be read up on. And the, one of the challenges of having a setting that is well known when you're running a game is that your players or, uh, or even just the GM might know so much about the world uh, and so, you know, more than you do, which can create a couple of problems, but it can also be a great boon. Uh, and this next hour or so, we're going to be talking about the benefits of running a game with an established world, uh, some of places for you to look for inspiration, and a look at our games to get you inspired as well, and of course the pitfalls of having uh, of working with a licensed RPG. And uh, as somebody added rightfully here, uh, holy spoiler warning, Batman! We we got all the spoilers. They're hot and ready, and they're just flying off the shelf right now. So. Uh, 
Fair warning, we've got, uh, let's see, we're mentioning a couple things from Inquisition. We usually have our typical spoiler warning of Dragon Age Origins to Dragon Age 2 is fair game. Dragon Age Inquisition is usually off limits, at least until Dragon Age 4 comes along. Today, that is not going to be the case. We're going to be mentioning a couple things, so uh, you've been warned. Next year makes five years. I think think we're beyond the statute of limitations here. The game is nearly four years Mm. old at this point. And if you haven't, what are you doing? <laughs> Go play. I agree. And if people are listening to this podcast, chances are <laughs> they've played Inquisition at least once. So Go play Inquisition. It's so good. Right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think the first bit of advice that we need, we should give that is also, uh, at least I think so, one of the most important things, uh, because it still gets me occasionally, and I have to like look in a mirror and say it to myself when I'm, thinking about, oh, I want to write a Dragon Age game, but but what do I write about? Uh, you are not bound by the canon. Absolutely not. Uh, you never have to feel that uh, any particular canon, whether it's comic books or someone's or your particular run-through in a game of, of one of the games, uh, none of them are the maker's truth, because this is your, this is your Dragon Age role-playing game, or, or it's your PC, so make Thetis yours. Uh, Dragon Age canon's already pretty loose to begin with so you know it's not like you're breaking too many rules Um, one of the things that i i thought about when coming into this is actually a philosophical concept it's uh the idea of the ship of theseus Mm -hmm. that as the story goes you know um theseus has defeated the minotaur he's become the king of athens um so the people of Athens decide that they're going to save his ship in the harbor so that it's uh so as a memorial to all the great things that he's done but over time, you know, some termites get into the mast and they have to take out the mast and they replace, they put in a new mast. And then uh, uh, part of the keel got rotted, so they have to take out some of the boards from the keel and they replace those with new boards. And eventually Theseus comes back to look, uh, to look at this ship as an old man. He says, where's my boat? <laughs> because it doesn't look like his boat at all. Hmm. As GMs, we have to find a balance between when using a campaign setting between taking the world as it's given to us and making the world our own, because we're effectively building a world at our table. Mm -hmm. There have been very hard and fast rules in dragon age. Oh, there are, there are no resurrection spells in dragon age. Well, except for when, and except for Evangeline and they managed to come back to life somehow, but no one can do that. No one can ever leave the Great Wardens. You know, once you're a Warden, you're doomed and you're going to experience the calling and all that, except for Fiona and Anders and, you know, other exceptions. Right. Breaking those sort of rules is part and parcel with what running this sort of game or any game in an established campaign setting. That's what happens. That's what happens. It's worth remembering, of course, Bioware's changed its own canon uh, over time. So the um, you know the epilogue of Dragon Age Origins um, has got Cullen, in one circumstance, going on a rampage and murdering mages and becoming a madman. Um, and you know Leliana and Ogryn can die um, in Dragon Age Origins and come back later on. And of course, the comics um, set their own canon, don't they? They have Alistair as king. Um, whereas you know in the people's computer games it can be um, different. 
So, um, you know, Bioware changes um, its canon too. It's true. They And honestly, I think some of the coolest stuff that they've done with Dragon Age comes about when they uh, go back on their own previously established rules. Get some pretty cool stuff out of it. And uh, it makes the world, you know, I think it makes the world seem a little bit more alive that it, that it can change. Like As I say, the, the, <laughs> the problem is if, um, if you ignore it completely, you know, so canon helps give or, uh, gain depth, you know, and immerses players. And um, so, I, to be fair, I tend to be very wary of, um, um, of uh, contradicting. And um, your, your example is a perfect one. You know, who is the uh, hero for Elden? Um, in my own campaign, you know, players ask. Um, I also say, oh, you know, different people say different things. You know, it, <laughs> assume the hero for Elden is what you played in Dragon Age Origins. And... Uh, you know, my, my PCs deal with the Inquisitor a lot. They're, me- they're members of the Inquisition. But even then, I'll, I try to avoid saying he or she. I'll say the Inquisitor says this. Um, I try to be as vague as possible um, <laughs> to, uh, to avoid um, any kind of um, fracture with reality that players might feel when they go, oh, well, no, my Inquisitor was a Dalish female. Um, do you know what I mean? So I, I think there's, there's points where you can, and you can refer to people like, you know, the king, the king of Orsamar. You don't have to say necessarily um, who, it, who that is. I think that that's, that's a good way to go about it. I think that's very, very, uh, very conscious of the player's, player's feelings. And I think, I think that's just, I think it's good practice. And see, I have a completely opposite um, experience. Whereas <laughs> my DM has said, this is the canon we're going with. Um, my my warden is this, my hawk is this, the inquisitor is this, and I don't think any of our players have ever had an issue at all. I think maybe part of it is because I do have, you know, eight wardens and five hawks and twelve inquisitors, so I can just pick the one that's mm. the best fit. Um, but I know at least for me personally, I'm very malleable with all of this because it is so much every person has their own and I can talk to you Ren who has a you know a, a dwarf warden and my warden is the queen of Ferelden and someone else's is you know the Dalish uh, a Dalish archer that you know and someone else's is, is a mage you know and still appreciate all the differences but know that okay this is you you're doing this this is your game you're running your cannon and that's fine by me again your mileage may vary but that's my personal experience with it and i don't think i've ever encountered that issue where people are like nope nope my my warden my inquisitor i find myself kind of um kind of falling more towards your your idea leona for kind of two reasons if you have someone at your table who isn't familiar with with dragon age and the setting one they probably don't care because they're coming they're coming and sitting down having not a whole lot of information but also it it shows to them that you've thought this out that you know that your world has a deep history has the you know has geography has uh, has the mythology established to it you know tailor-made for for what's going to happen at your table and if you do have people at your table who are the da veterans 
they're going to appreciate the fact that you thought, okay, well, if they made this choice, then this happened and this happened and this happened. And you can kind of take advantage of that uh, setting mastery, so to speak. I think that's good. I personally also have a, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's good uh, to set the precedent. And that's what I did with my campaign was I said who I told everybody who the hero of Ferelden was. And uh, while they all gave me sidelong glances, uh, they all worked, they all worked with me. And so communication at the beginning, I think, is just a good way to go. It's certainly the case that um, if you have players who haven't played the games, um, which I have in my campaign, then you just don't have to worry about it at all. Um, um, you can say, yes, it's Haramont, who's king of, um, hmm. of Orzammar. <clears throat> or if they played it years ago, and as you say, there's plenty of casual players who, um, you know, a friend of mine played it a few years ago, and then I said, who was your king? Who ended up ruling Ferelden? For, for he said, I can't even remember who ended up um, <laughs> ruling Ferelden. So I didn't have to worry about them either. But I, mean, I suppose you can, um, one can, and I did, you can ask your players as well, isn't it, at the start? So, okay, who in your campaigns, um, when you played the, the computer games, <clears throat> what's your, um, what choices did you make? And um, where you get everyone agreeing, um, then that's it's extremely simple. You can say, oh, okay, yeah, well, and we all chose Haramont, for example. You know, so he is the king. There's no doubt about it. And there's no, no risk of any sort of um, immersion breaking. And uh, I think what I like as a tool is the uh, Dragon Age Keep. Um, right? I guess you could get, technically, you could get all the different players if they played the computer game to, um, to share their Dragon Age Keep with you. So you have, um, at a glance, um, you can investigate every choice they made. It's funny. I actually wrote uh, I wrote in uh, about the the Dragon Age Keep uh, a little later in the notes um, because because it's such a useful tool. I mean, effectively, you can take twenty minutes and click through every major choice in all three games and the DLC, and at the end, oh well, there's a lovely sideshow narrated for uh, for everyone that you can show your players in your session zero and say, "This is the world that uh, this is the." the thetis that you that we're living in that's true and mm. for and for your novice players they're going to be like okay well i well i got this this is that kind of world and then your veteran players be like oh these are the these are i made this choice differently but oh they know exactly mm. where you're at i like that yeah i know my dm i always kind of marvel at the fact that he never did the dark ritual with morrigan <laughs> And I just mm. never, he never has done it. And so our canon has no dark ritual and no Kieran. And um, I, it just blows my mind. It's never happened for him, but that's what we go with. So, okay. All right. Fair enough. He did but get yeah, a bit of uh, a communication... uh, sidelong glance at that one, but you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh so communication up front, you know, uh, Dragon Age is a lot of fun when it breaks its own rules. So people are probably going to be on board for whatever you got going, but just let them know what's what they're getting into when they when they hop in. Um, so the some of the benefits of drag of especially uh, specifically Dragon Age is that the canon includes quite a bit of world building that has not been fleshed out yet. Uh, Bioware said that they specifically seeded their world very widely to have a lot of stuff to work with. 
but uh, a lot but a lot of it is just like names on a map or mentions of maybe like a specific ethnicity of dwarves that lives to the east of the that lives like off to the to the uh, the west of the Anderfels. Um, or maybe it's uh, what's across the Amaranthine Ocean or all of those other mysteries. So you've got a lot of room to play around and answer those questions for yourself. Whether or not they end up canon <clears throat> later on doesn't really matter because now you've got your own. It's your own game, and and you should you should feel free to have fun with that. The Wonders of Thetis books, if memory serves me correctly, have a lot of those kind of subsidiary details where you could, uh, like, was it the, the one race, the lizard folk, the Fex, I think they're called, but they're mentioned maybe twice total in Ooh. different codex entries, but, I mean, that can become an entire campaign-length adventure for your group as they discover this land full of lizard dudes. That's fun stuff. Uh, I... I remember them being mentioned. I think it was in the Descent DLC. It was, it was something it was like very scarce. So I, I might, I might have up. the source wrong, and uh, you, you might have got me on that one. But, but yeah, they're they're mentioned like twice. And yeah, sure. If if yeah. Dragon Age Five comes out and Fex is now a playable playable character race, that's all well and good. It's twenty thirty. You know, your game now. You can do what you want. <laughs> Uh, they're, they're definitely going to take their time on that, aren't they? Yeah, really. I just did mental math at how old I'll be in 2030, and I've... Oh. <laughs> You're oh, playing the best games, though. I will still be playing the best games. I'll be in my 50s. Hands wrapped around a PlayStation 7 controller. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Arthritis setting in because I've been holding it for so long. <laughs> Could you bring the screen a little closer? <laughs> At this point, my what? 175-inch TV? and no, They'll be broadcasting it directly into your brain. Oh, there we go. That, that's right. Sorry. I, I, I should have known. Psychic TV. Mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, <laughs> speaking of broadcasting things directly to your brain, um, well, another one of the benefits of Dragon Age is that the setting is shown and not told. Which uh, I have, which I've found a couple of cool settings for role playing games, but the only places I get to see them are like in in rule books that state very clearly, you know, this is what is here, this is over here, these people do this stuff. But because we have Dragon Age that has video games and it's got novels and it's got comic books uh, and it's got uh, a movie, it's got it it, sh- it shows you the world. So you know what it looks like and what it sounds like and what it feels like. If you play Dragon Age Origins, then you've got a very solid grasp on what Ferelden feels like. So you can portray it very well in the role-playing games. And a couple of other licensed RPGs have that kind of like like Star Wars. I mean, anyone who's seen a Star Wars movie can probably then put that into a role-playing game fairly well. But then you can... But you've got a source material to work with that's very... That, that is showing and not telling so you can portray it and uh, and you can play it play it portray it the way that you saw it so you can get a more uh what's it uh genuine experience i guess definitely a more visceral one mm-hmm. yeah or immersive yeah <clears throat> i mean it's interesting as well i think um for example i i do not think by we're going to be going back to uh forever much um they seem to sort of move on don't they so 
they, they've used Ferelden and they're going to uh, Orlay and uh, we all know that the next game will be sort of, you know, to Winterweight, um, <clears throat> which would make me actually, interestingly, loathe to um, to invent a Tavinta campaign because I'd be worried that everything I invented was about to be contradicted um, in short order by Bioware. Um, but Whereas I'd be much happier to run something in, say, Guaran down the south of Fred, which I don't think um, <laughs> will ever be, I'd ever be contradicted on. Because I don't think um, I will ever go back there. I think that's probably fair. Ferelden has been done by this point. We've been there for a couple of we've been there for two games and for a couple of the books. So we've got we've got other horizons to see. But uh, a kind of a weird resource that I've uh, that I've been using in preparation for my the my Gen Con game is. Listening to while well, I'm at work, I'll sit and literally put the put the dialogue on from uh, Inquisition, so that I can so that I can listen to the voices for Stroud and Blackwall because, because ah. they feature so heavily in uh, in the scenario I'm running that I've been trying to replicate their voices. Nice. So it served as literally you know a voice coach trainer for me. Uh, trying to trying cool. to get down uh, Warden Blackwall. Fair enough. I, I, I hadn't considered that. <laughs> but I definitely tried to mimic some voices when I had, like, uh, Wynn make a cameo appearance. I think we had Dorian. Dorian had one quick cameo appearance in our campaign. Gotta get the Rockstar Mage in there. <laughs> uh, and of course, even for the stuff that's not as fleshed out, like Ferelden and Orlay are, there's codex entries that are in-world artifacts of writings about those places that haven't been seen yet. So even for the stuff that hasn't been directly experienced in the games, you still got some in-world artifacts that you can look at to get a feeling of how maybe this part of the world is expected to be portrayed or, or, you know, turn that on its head. Maybe that person was wrong. Maybe you can make it all your own. Uh, But yeah, one of the, Codex entries that I, I'm actively planning if I if I run a DA campaign sometime soon um, is pulling from uh, one called the Lost City of Barindur, and again just Ooh. mentioned once is this Tevinter city that they messed with the Archon at some point uh, before the before the Common Era and they just literally sunk it. It's somewhere in Tevinter. They don't know where it's gone now. <laughs> oh jeez! So it's that sort of it's that oh, sort of I codex guess. entry that really gives the depth uh, for that, and we may never so get there in a Dragon Age uh, game. But that's the, that's the sort of plot that that you as a GM can play with. One of the um, <clears throat> one of the uh, times you really don't have to worry about canon too much, um, and you you mentioned very much is if you start going back pre Dragon Age. So you start going back, you know, centuries or to um, involve PCs in, uh, you know, to back previous blights or whatever it might be. There's loads of histories in, there in the game. So uh, whereas I suppose technically it would not become a Dragon Age game, it would become something like a Storm Age game. Um, of course, you'd, you'd need to um, invent a hell of a lot, but you've sort of freed yourself of having to worry about um, <laughs> canon. Uh, you know, who's the king of uh, this place, that place, or the other? Uh, you might be able to drag the names off the um, off the codex, but um, you know, some people do, don't they? I know, uh, I know for a fact, um, Kismet Rose was doing a, 
that pre um, pre Dragon Age game, um, and that's so that's a like, again as I say in Lord of the Rings, um, it was uh, you know in the eighties, it's a thousand years before the War of the Ring, um, <clears throat> so that's uh, that's an option, but it does require more work on the GM's behalf. So. Yes, and then it practically becomes inventing your own campaign setting, but using some familiar pieces. The nice thing with that, though, the core book does give us uh, some resources in that regard. Um, in the in the GMing chapter, uh, chapter 10, uh, they talk about running a historical campaign. Uh, the one they, uh, one mentioned here is uh, during the era of the Rebel Queen with uh, not quite yet King Merrick uh, during the Ferelden Rebellion for Morlaix. So, you know, that... Uh, that section, if you're interested in running that sort of historical game, there are some resources for you in the core book. Uh, I was actually going to mention that uh, I'm probably, that uh, I planted a seed at the end of the first adventure I wrote, What Chains Are For, uh, based on one of the codex entries I found in Inquisition uh, that I found particularly fascinating, because especially it means we get to go to places we haven't been, which was uh, the Pyramids of Parvalin. Mm. Oh, yeah. It talks about uh, pyramids that have been built uh, before the Kunari got there and belonged to the people who were living there before the Kunari came in uh, and uh, brought them un- brought them under the Kun. And it's got specific bits like how they're very uh, geometrically built and how they're uh, sort of built in uh, like uh, in concordance with like constellations. And it, just, it sounded super cool. So I will probably be writing more adventures about that. Because that sounds like it might be a bit far off to get covered by uh, the uh, to get covered by one of the video games. I don't know, man. If four takes us to Tevinter <laughs> and we start fighting Canari, <laughs> mm, you know, fair enough. <laughs> we could head north. Uh, of course, let's see. I see we notes we st- we got. Now we get down to the Dragon Age Keep part. Uh, it, is, it is everyone's best friend for canon because it lets you build it. And, the, and again, the nicest thing about that is it really does not take long um, once you're in the interface to make literally every decision in the game. You know, down to down to the granular of did you save this guy? Did you give this guy the, this ring back? And you know, who did who did Hawk romance? You know, um, it provides all of that. And then at the very end, all you have to do is click play, and you have a you have a session zero history built right for you right there that's a very good idea yeah, yeah. Um, if you are looking for those sort of codex entries if you're looking for you know how do i how do i get these when they're in the game uh the dragon age wiki as well has just about every codex entry i believe from all three games and the dlc um all you have to do is run a quick search yeah no i, I mean that i agree with and would urge gms to do is it does help if you do know more from your players about the game world. Um, and of course, you're, you're, you're inventing adventures, so hopefully, if you're setting them in, um, uh, I don't know, Frostback Mountains, you've, you've read all the code entries on that, so you're really up on that. But uh, you don't want to be um, telling the players that you know, they're meeting a, a, a turn of uh, the West Hills, and uh, your players say, oh, actually, there's only two turns, you know, it's <laughs> High Evelyn Guaran. Uh, you, you mean the Anne of, um, or the Isle of the Hills, don't you? Uh, you, know, um, mm-hmm. you hopefully, you'll be the uh, source of all that, of all knowledge. So it does help to uh, gen up on it. 
Dragon Age has a lot of toys to play with in terms of the setting that it makes. Uh, beyond, of course, and see beyond the the myriad options that the Dragon Age keep can give you. Uh, there are plenty of unanswered questions and several several questions that a lot of the developers have said they're going to leave unanswered. And I think that's a good idea because it makes the world a lot more interesting that way than having all the answers mm -hmm. in our laps. But that means that uh, even for those questions that they never intend to answer, uh, for your individual campaigns, since it's your canon, feel free to make an answer for yourself for your own game. And uh, I see we got a uh, we oh, got man. plenty of suggestions here. A lovely list of the things that Dragon Age has kindly, you know, left up to our uh, wondering imaginations here. So we've got uh, the Chronicle of Shartan, which was struck from the chant uh, when the Exalted March on the Dales was being conducted. Uh, of course, we have the, the entrance into the golden, now black city, um, seeing exactly how much of what Corypheus tells us is correct, where it happened. Uh, there's been some illusions that it might be on Sundermount or somewhere around Kirkwall, but uh, but that's still a big mystery, how, how this all happened in the first place and how we got the blight started. Uh, the Enigma of Kirkwall itself, uh, as it... As, as a couple of codex entries and explorations will reveal that Kirkwall seems to almost have been built for specific yeah, purposes. Lots, lots of runes and uh, almost uh, as if to funnel literal blood <laughs> through the city. Just one blood, one mage in Kirkwall that's not a blood mage. That's all I'd like. Just one. Just one. You know. Just one. Maybe two if we're feeling fancy. Well, I guess Anders <laughs> technically wasn't, it's I just guess. just an abomination. So give me one more. One <laughs> more. Yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't want I mean, to spit in the other. Um, of course, we all, uh, we have the forgotten and the forbidden uh, ones, which are often conflated. Uh, the forgotten ones are kind of the the quote unquote evil elven deities that are kind of struck from the Evanuris, whereas the forbidden ones are Zebenkek and Gaxkang and the Imshale and the heretofore unseen formless one. Uh, demons mm -hmm. that had some dealings with the ancient elves. Yeah. And we, my, uh, I think I go into it in a little, in a little bit farther down the notes, oh but we my. actually touched on the Forbidden Ones in one of my campaigns. Ooh. Mm-hmm. It's fun stuff. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm kind of hoping that they put uh, Imshale in Faces oh, of Thetis, yeah. because he just makes a fantastic villain. Toy <laughs> Spirit. <laughs> choice spirit <laughs> oh yeah and uh there is also they, they made one codex entry i think it was for dragon age 2 where a group of seekers are investigating the for uh i think it was the forgotten ones mm -hmm. and finding if they have any relation to the forbidden ones or uh if they're perhaps the same group of people or maybe there's just a whole bunch of horrible demons out there i mean you know I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. That would be that would be par for the course. It sure would be, especially since we got like mountain-sized demons eating people's fear of the blight. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, obviously, one of the biggest mysteries is the fall of Arlathan, like what actually happened in the ancient Elven Empire. Uh, we get a couple of answers to that through Trespasser, um, where you know, we get the idea that the, the elves kind of ate themselves, so to speak, and then Tevinter picked over the remains. But where is the city of Arlathan and where, um, what exactly happened that started the decline of the, the ancient Elven? And for that matter, are there that many ancient Elven still around in uh, Uthanera? Are they off sleeping in some temple somewhere just waiting to be activated? Ooh, that would make a nice uh, little something for a campaign. Ancient mm-hmm. Arlathan Elf just wakes up. <laughs> what are you all doing out here? <laughs> Why are you all, like, wearing leaves? <laughs> And of course, we have, uh, you know, a battle between uh, the uh, Evanurus and the Titans. Here's those Dragon Age Inquisition spoilers. Uh, finding out all those things in Trespasser about uh, uh, the giant battles between the elven gods and, you know, the things we found out about in, in The Descent, that has barely been brushed upon. And, you know, even though they gave us uh, a big chunk there saying, saying they actually went to war, Finding out uh, that only raises even more questions as, as to what happened with all this. Mm-hmm. After Clever the descent, I just want to know everything about the Titans, and they mm-hmm. told us practically nothing. So. Uh, I feel like I'm watching Steven Universe. For the- <laughs> just string us along for a couple of filler episodes and then give us a little Truth nugget of the mystery. In the finale. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's speaking of truth bombs, the idea of dwarven magic. The when we have Sandal and Shaper Volta both able to uh, have some type of link up with Lyrium, maybe through the Titans, maybe through the Shabra Tal. There's a lot of a lot of opportunity for campaigns there that again hasn't been touched with and might be in the future, but not right now. It's set to be mined. Ha ha. I had to get a pun in here. Jess isn't here to oh. give a pun. <laughs> Jess would be proud. She would. Uh, I definitely want to know more about the Shabbatal. When they came in with those uh, freaking lyrium blasters, and I saw like a streak of blue across yeah. the screen, and they're like holding fire. <laughs> I was like, when do they start playing Mass Effect? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh no, is this a crossover? Am I in trouble? I don't have any biotics equipped. No. Oof, and those those bolters. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have to start asking questions like can Templars fight against biotics? And then and it just gets real messy. <laughs> I didn't bring the right gun with me. <laughs> what class is you that lets you like surge across the field yeah, in a really. stream of light? I wanna I wanna be I wanna be that specialization. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Next is uh, the nature of red lyrium. Where does it come from? Why does it That's exist? It. Can can a titan get the blight? <laughs> what happens when what happens when a blighted oh, titan wakes up? It rocks fall, everyone dies. But you know, <laughs> yeah, not good things. No, none of none of the good things. Yeah, but this is Thetis. When do we have good things? Correct. Very rarely. 
Uh, coupled mm-hmm. with that, I mean, we're down to what two dwarven cities now: Kalsharok and Orzammar. So, uh, all those other dwarven mm-hmm. tigs are ripe for the picking. You know, in terms of in terms of plot devices, maybe one of those entire cities still exists, but no longer has access because uh, of a deep roads collapse or for some other reason. Mm-hmm. There could be there could be a, a couple of outposts out there mm-hmm. that are still holding on. Oh, and after hearing about Kalsharok, I can only imagine how those other outposts will be doing, yeah. the ones we haven't heard from yet. <laughs> uh, there is uh, the mystery of mysteries of uh, Flemeth and her daughters. Yeah. How many daughters does she have? Uh, what are her plans? <laughs> is she still alive? <laughs> is she? Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a big one. I... Yeah. I get my gut goes with yes, just because it's Flemeth. I don't know. I'm. Uh, it it, I, it I mean, comes down to a lot of like, what is Flemeth? I mean, mm-hmm. is she is she the spirit, or is she the ancient elf, or is she the witch of the wilds, or some combination thereof? She's why can't she be all three? <laughs> Knowing our luck, I, she will be. Yeah. She is. I. I, I my gut just says, yeah, she's still alive. So there's still things to know about her. Things, again, things we don't know. Mm-hmm. Things maybe your companion can fill in. Oh, she has died once already. Mm-hmm. You know, potentially at the hands mm-hmm. of the hero for Elden. And she uh, did allude, did ask that question, uh, am, I, am I really limited to being in one place at one time? So, you know, weird stuff. We've already kind of touched on the pyramids of Parvalen uh, with the strange astronomical uh, alignments and the, you know, the kind of weird geometric shapings that are there. But again, you know, if you want if you want to go tomb raiding, you know, there's there's the opportune spot for you. Hmm. That does have fun. I'm going to definitely I, mm-hmm. I should probably get to writing that soon. Evade the Kunari while you're literally mm-hmm. on their land taking their stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. That always goes well. <laughs> and then maybe, uh, what was the, oh man, what was the name of the gal from the, or the, the title of the Kunari who was, uh, trying to take control of the Alluvians? Uh, uh Sala, yeah. I would Thank not you. be surprised if, especially if you start finding some weird magic stuff, you might have to contend with one or two Vidasala. Mm-hmm. That could be fun. Mm-hmm. Kunari are fun. Definitely. Sure, that's one word for it. <laughs> um, the continents beyond Thetis, of course, are pract- could practically be entire campaign settings of your own if you oh, just, yeah. you know, if you just like how Dragon Age plays and you want it to be Dragon Age esque, but feel like uh, going at your going it by yourself, then you know Thetis. Uh, then uh, Brother Genitivi admits Thetis isn't entirely explored. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of pages in the second volume of the World of Thetis where Brother Genitivi does say what what very little is known about uh, north, south, uh, east, and west of Thetis. And it's uh, not much. Yeah. Which means you'll just all have to fill in the gaps for us. And that actually kind of leads into kind of the last question that we have here is how much does canon really matter to you and your game table? Uh, if your game is going to be set in one of these far-off continents where this is unexplored territory and you're using the Dragon Age setting as just kind of a backdrop, 
it probably doesn't matter who's sitting on the throne of Ferelden because you're never going to be in Ferelden. In that case, I think that's it. fair. <laughs> it's not re- not necessarily relevant. Um, if <laughs> if the interactions with the the characters from the video games aren't going to matter for the story that you're telling. You don't have to stress over every last detail. If they're not going to meet Fenris in the, in the course of the campaign, you don't have to worry about writing a stat block. Don't overthink it. Even if a character does appear, like if you have, especially as a quest giver or as a one-time bail-us-out sort of thing, you don't need to know mm. every communication bonus that they have to be able to run them in combat. Do the work that you need to. Don't stress about the small stuff. You never yeah. prep too much. However, given that, if you do have some if you do have a recurring canon character that's going to be in your campaign, um with uh Sister Nightingale comes immediately to mind because she uh she's within Dragon Age 2 within Inquisition, we can see her as that sort of spy master role. If she's going to be giving your uh, giving your characters orders or you know sending them on missions, yeah, it might be useful to have a set of stats for her. And ideally, uh, come the end of August, we will have those. Hopefully, maybe unless it gets pushed back again. Mm. Grumble, grumble. Mm. Again, mm. yeah. I, From, um, what April to uh, July? No, I might have had uh, had a <laughs> not rather pointed exchange with one of the guys at uh, Green Ronin about this um, at Origins. It wasn't rude oh, or wasn't argumentative, but just like, man, been waiting on this one for eight months. Come on, guys. Eight months that weren't yeah. originally supposed to be eight months. Mm-hmm. Oh well, it'll it'll come out when it comes out, and we'll. And we'll oh, be yeah. sticking our faces into it when uh, oh, uh, yeah. for the podcast when it does. Oh yeah. But of course, this is the sort of information that yeah. you and your group you want to decide that during your session zero. Uh, that way, you can get a feel on how much your group already knows about the about the game. Uh, get their input. What do they want? Do they want to interact with the Inquisition, for instance? Do they want to be part of the Fifth Blight? Well. Do they want to help solve the fifth blights? Maybe a better way to put that. Um, what what is the sort of campaign that you're going uh, that is going to take shape at the table, and how much canon? And I hate to say research, but that's what it is. How much canon research do you have to do to be able to to put that in everybody's wheelhouse? I think it's a fair question, uh, and it'd be very good to ask everybody what they know. Uh, so maybe they can fill in any gaps that you might have, or uh, or you can find out what gaps there are that you can fill for them. Now, uh, and it'll also be good for uh, players to talk to their GMs about how much wiggle room they have for like a character's backstory and uh, where they're even setting the backstory, because if they know Thetis' history fairly well, they can probably make some assumptions uh, like if this is first blight and the character comes from Tevinter, things are probably not going great in Tevinter right now. Uh, but if it's you know post fifth blight where the Tevinter didn't even get didn't really even get touched by the blight, then things are probably going okay for him. Relatively, <laughs> that Kunari invasion might still be a thing that's con, but you know, it's it's coming DA4, for all. Of us. Let's comes. be real. They'll they will they'll try better next time. <laughs> Here it comes. 
Pretty please. We have been good. So our our kind of last major segment here is talking a little bit about uh, how we've used canon in our own games. And you know, Ren, you you guys have run I think the longest here. Why don't you Why don't you kick us off here? Oh man, let me tell you about my campaign. It's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, the big ma- honestly honestly I tried to keep it uh, like. I like to usually run that things can change, but there are fixed points in time in my campaign. So no matter what's going down, you know, somebody ends the fifth blight, somebody, uh, somebody becomes the ruler of Ferelden. And the, uh, and I had a couple of those more specific things that were specific to my playthrough because with my games, I usually say that uh, the GM gets to use their save file. (laughs) So we had, uh, so, like, the architect was left alive, uh, and uh, the mother was had been dealt with. Uh, Awakening had just happened, I think, a couple of months before we started the campaign. We used most of the written materials, like the pre-written adventures, and then we started going into our own materials. And we, had to, we got pretty off script, although we borrowed a couple of things from the, uh, goodness... What was it called? The Esoterica from Thetis that had a couple of cool suggestions in it for organizations that we borrowed. And they were very appropriate for our group that was primarily elf characters. So it was and so we were all down for uh, a little bit of race politics and uh, making sure that all these folks have a safe place to be. So the major turning point in our campaign that makes it very different from normal timelines is Brasilia. Um after the events of Dragon Age Awakening, uh, something uh, stirs after uh, say in, a, in a particular cult to Fen Harel. Um, they meet an elf who claims to be the elven god of vengeance, and they come to reclaim the world from the humans that took the world from them, punish the dwarves who did nothing for them, and repel the Kunari who sought to convert them. Uh, the opposition to this particular movement ended up being my three-player characters. Uh, so my four-player characters, on and off, we had a lot of folks come and go from this particular campaign. But uh, it was those uh, uh, several elves had, I think, we had two Dalish, three Dalish elves, a city elf, a Kunari, and I believe we had one human who definitely died from lyrium overdose. <laughs> that was weird. Um uh, but... I actually think that's great. <laughs> I, I, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's me being, you know, completely sadistic, but I actually think that's great that that actually happened to yeah. one of your characters. It's I'm... not something that really comes up that much until yeah. we start talking about Templars. and. But going back to, like, the, um, the addiction thing, like, that inspired my DM to make an entire addiction table in our game now. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> yeah, a good thing he's a made an thing? entire. He made an entire table. All these different drugs. It's wonderful. Oh man! Wow. <laughs> but again, that's my sadistic thing, and mm-hmm. you know, I think it's great. You know, having that in there. It adds a bit more darkness, a bit more right. consequence, yeah. which is very Dragon Age. Right, and then and that's part of each individual's canon now. Yes, for sure. Um, now, uh, part of, let's see, this movement eventually became so great and was opposed by these three heroes that, uh, they managed to stop some more serious plans. Like 
attempting to sacrifice everybody sitting in the stands of the Grand Tourney. Um, they received enough prestige and power to build a new elven nation in the Brazilian forest, and they named it Brasilia in honor of the forest that was given to them. It uh, we, we, we used the organization rules for it, and it became a national power very quickly, inviting elves from all walks of life to come to a new home where they may exist without apology. Uh, the only thing that has really, st- and uh, other than that, canon has mostly been kept by the fact that the Chantry had bigger things to worry about than these than these elves over here, all hiding in the forest. Uh, because once once things started getting a little tense, Anders blew up a Chantry. <sighs> Damn it, Anders! <laughs> and and then the chan- and then the Chantry was like, "Hold up, what's going on over here?" What's going on? And then, you know, Mage Templar War starts happening. So then the Chantry is a little distracted and the elves are just kind of like, we're just going to slip into this little knothole over here. You guys do. You humans do your thing. We're, we're good. <laughs> um, now we are we're actually incidentally, we are considering doing an actual play about the exploits of these heroes in the era of Dragon Age Inquisition, which I think is about seven years after my campaign ends. Uh, we might be going, and I'm be, I've been considering writing some rules for going beyond level 20, which could be fun. I'm not sure what is going to challenge PC, level 20 PCs in, in Thetis, but I'm, uh, I mean, there's always mm-hmm. dragons. Dragons are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The giants, too. Uh, they were a pain in oh, the yeah, Oh, yeah, you know, probably going to be giants. It's, the, the, it's going to be like <laughs> level 25 going in, like, what the heck? These things are tough. Where are all yeah, my legs? It didn't matter. As soon as they pegged you with one of those boulders, you could run as far as you wanted. You were still getting hit. Uh, I'll tell you, on every mage I've ever run in Dragon Age Inquisition, I always take Fade Step solely because of that. <laughs> oh, he's winding <laughs> up? Shoop! <laughs> Gone. Uh, if you'd like uh, to read more about Brasilia, we do have a write-up about it on our blog. It should be at the top of the page. Uh, unfortunately, because we still lost Toby, we're uh, say, uh, maybe we'll hear about about Toby's exp- uh, escapades later. But for now, uh, I see Leona and Andy. You got some stuff written. Let's start with Leona. Okay. Um, well, my gaming experience is a bit disjointed as we ran for a little while in one game, and then that kind of fell apart differences between DMs and pl- the DM and the players. And then a few of our characters moved to a different DM, who is uh, the DM I have now. Shout out to Derek. Um, and so we've taken our characters and run with him now. And um, we were basically agents of the Inquisition. So lots of opportunities for interactions with the canon characters, but as we were low-level officers, basically peons, mm-hmm. you know? We didn't really talk to Leliana and Cullen and Cassandra or anything like that. We were sent out by Cullen's subordinate's subordinate, mm-hmm. you know? Um, we would, instead of, like, having those, we would see, you know, oh, the Inquisitor just walked into Haven with this really big one-eyed Kunari, a guy with a most impressive beard, and a dwarf that really needs to change his wardrobe because it's cold. And, I don't know. The chest hair I mean, probably keeps him pretty. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> oh, I could go on about Varric, but I won't. Um, 
<laughs> so, in, but like out of game, we all know. Well, yeah, that's the Iron Bull and Blackwall and Varric. But in game, it's our characters are just like, oh, those are the important people. Let's leave them alone because we're not we we're not going to bother them with what our little thing is. Um. So we what we had is those characters that crossed over from one game to the next. We kind of retired them and had them do their own thing. One character became the Lioness of Gavadon in Orlais and is now one of the most important nobles in Valchevin. Derek made this entire political intrigue campaign uh, for Orlais. It was phenomenal. He created Valchevin and all of the nobles and different... Um, they, ha- they all had different schemes and plots and... Um, Different, oh, I'm blanking on words. <laughs> words are hard. <laughs> motivations. They had different motivations. You know, some were good, some were bad, some were indifferent, some were double-crossing us, some were triple-crossing us. There were some surprises thrown in, but that all of that became our canon for this little this town in Orlais, which is on the map, but really isn't talked about a whole lot in the game. So now we have a, our own Valshavan. We have our character who now lives there and is basically, she's one of the, she's one of the high and mighty there. Um, another character became a higher ranking warden who took my character under his wing when she became a warden. And since we don't know exactly what's happening with the wardens after Inquisition, we create whatever reality we want with that. Um, my character also had interactions with the formless one. Nice. We don't know anything about the formless one, so we kind of made the formless one as kind as a high level demon. All right. Probably a good thing would be a cross between a desire and a pride demon, maybe. <laughs> where it just right. wanted, you know, I like it to give you what you wanted, but not in the way you wanted it. Uh, so. But now we're those characters are retired, so we're bringing in new characters, and we're basically again going to be members of the Inquisition, and we're going to run the table missions and make those missions that you just see little you know blurbs about nice. on the screen. We're going to make those missions I'm our down. own, and then that becomes our canon again. Awesome. I, I've I've seen some other people use that that same tack because there are just so many war table missions and there's so much there to mine that, that it becomes yeah. I mean you could do one a week and you'll have three years of campaign. Exactly. And they're I mean they're ready made missions. Here's where you're going, this is what and you want to do. The Inquisitor just gets the reports at the and end. And then okay, now what happens? Lots of lots of brilliant Yep. <laughs> Yeah, who knows how it actually went down. All right. Um, with In terms of canon in my games, I'm going to kind of break this into, into two approaches because the approach that I took with Scenic Dunsmith, I'd mentioned that here. Uh, mm-hmm. Scenic Dunsmith is a scenario actually written for Lamentations of the Flame Princess um, that I adapted for Dragon Age and ran that as a campaign-length adventure uh, with some modifications for the, for the DA setting. Um, our characters were um, were agents of the Inquisition as well, um, but because of where they were at, I you know Dunsmith, I set it out way out in the Fallowmire. Our their interactions with anyone from the Inquisition was minimal. 
they got their orders from Leliana at the very first session. They saw her and they got to meet up with her and Dorian for their debriefing at the end. And there was a very brief mention of uh, Gary and Alexius. And that was about it. Because things were so self, uh, self-sustaining and far removed from the events of Inquisition, I, I didn't find that I needed to go into a whole lot of detail in that regard. That said, um, it's not too much of a spoiler. Uh, Scenic Dunsmith um, has a lot of time travel elements to it. And within the scope of that, uh, there's an artifact called the Time Cube. That's all it's called. Um, within using that artifact, I kind of took uh, the, the quest In Hushed Whispers and the, uh, the Still Ruins from the Western Approach, both from Inquisition, as kind of my inspiration for, okay, how does time magic actually work? And how can we manipulate that? Um, but again, there's no canon established there aside from kind of those two little pieces. So uh, the inspiration kind of ran the show for that. I forgot about the still ruins. The one, that was a really cool quest. Uh, it's one of my favorite dungeons in the entire game, just because mm-hmm. you're, you're effectively fighting it from the inside out. Yeah, that was really clever. Just, so neat. so neat and really creepy, too. Um, the big thing in canon that I absolutely wrecked was the Chronicle of Shartan. Ooh. Which, to my understanding, has always been like, oh, this is what... Uh, this is what Andraste's friend, maybe lover, um, was experiencing as, as she's running the rebellion. And I annihilated that <laughs> um, <laughs> linking it to uh, linking it to the creation of the Vartarals, the, the big spidery looking demon things from uh, Dragon Age 2 and I invented their creator uh, one of the, uh, an elven noble called Sathurian who became known as Sathurian the Kinslayer and how he became enslaved to this blight spider thing um, they actually had to fight him. Uh, my wife's character actually stole his spear, which is which is pretty cool. Ooh. But uh, but Ooh. again, uh, there were some passages in that in that text which I which I pulled from the Dragon Age wiki that just fit perfectly for if you play Scenic Dunsmith, get ready for a lot of spiders. There are spiders everywhere, and it just so happened that there was a passage from the the Chronicle of Shartan that really fit well with what was going on in the course of the adventure. So in that case, I threw out a lot of Dragon Age canon to to make that really fit what was going on in my game. Now to con- now to Fair contrast enough. that like <laughs> uh, the the scenario I'm I'm running at Gen Con actually took a lot more prep in terms of canon because because of where it's set and what's going on um it's not it's not spoiling anything if if any of your if any of our listeners are actually going to game with me in a couple weeks here um that the the scenario centers on the heroes being sent uh as part as inquisition envoys to weishaupt along with warden stroud and blackwall uh as as the idea is that the events of Here Lies the Abyss have already taken place. Um, Warden Blackwall has been exposed as Tom Rainier, so um, the Inquisitor has been has basically said, "We're going to make you a warden. Go fix this." 
and that Hawk has died in the abyss in order to spare Stroud so that he can rally the wardens. So the entire premise of the adventure is that you, that you as the players are going to negotiate the treaty on behalf of the Inquisitor. Given that, given that right. I had to decide, okay, what is the Inquisitor going to be? So within the adventure, I actually sat down and I wrote up a, just a one-page document. And I'm not going to read the whole thing here. I'll hit a few, a few highlights of what the, who the Inquisitor is and what, and what they have been doing. So given this, I, ha- I made up Maxwell Trevelyan. He's you know, the human male noble. Uh, he was a rogue. Uh, rumored to have uh, gained assassin training from at the request of Sister Nightingale, basically, so he doesn't get killed. Um, he, chose, he chose to ally with the Templars. He uh, And the Templars, nice. in turn, aided the siege at Theronfall Redoubt because, uh, because, hey, we're fighting a whole bunch of magic and blood mages. Let's get on that. Um, as I mentioned, as I mentioned, he left behind Hawk in the Fade, who was uh, Liara Hawk, an apostate mage, um, and and currently, along with most of the Inner Circle, is off trying to liberate Empress de Leon. There were, a, a, and I I list a number of other items in in this uh, in this document, but it's basically just the sort of thing that you'd be able to assemble if you if you go through Dragon Age Keep and just tick, okay, I romanced this person and I, you know, I took this quest option and this is what I did in this situation and I allied with these guys and I exiled these guys. Um, that way, when my players sit down to play that game, they know what kind of Inquisitor they're representing. They know the sort of person that they're going to, that they're going to be, I don't want to say, they know who their boss is effectively mm, um they know that he uh is has a self-deprecating sense of humor and has an ongoing kind of money penny james bond relationship with josephine going on really in, in for this specific adventure really was a necessity uh, in terms of establishing who are we representing what are we going to be doing and what does our inquisitor want so within that I had to do a little more digging. Now, there was one issue here um, about Grey Warden hierarchy, um, because the identity of some of the senior wardens, the commander of the Grey, and the like, were not established at all to date. We don't know who the first warden is over in Hosburg. We don't know who uh, the commander of the Grey is. Because of that, I had to make all that up. And... Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, part of the uh, part of the adventure is uh, ends up with the election of a new gray, uh, a, a new first warden. So there's uh, there's some stuff going down. But uh, ideally, uh, once uh, once Gen Con is over and done with, I'll uh, I'll have silver wings right. on a black wall available as part of the uh, part of the dissonant verses. Sweet, good deal. We'll be happy to put that on. All righty. <laughs> All right, we got one last bit of information, one last bit of advice, uh, one last nugget that I think is also very important they want to impart on all of you is don't be that person. Uh, because the, now we're, uh, specifically we mean, the truly greatest challenge of running or playing in a licensed RPG depends not on the source material, not on the mechanics of the game, but how, uh, and how not how often the books come out and change the world. It's the people who are going to play it or they're going to run it. 
Uh, more specifically, there are there's a type of player that goes by many names, but my favorite name that they use, that has been used is the continuity expert. Um, <sighs> this is <laughs> this is uh, now um, this uh, continuity experts can be good and they can be bad, um, but bad continuity experts can be the thing that ruins licensed RPGs for people. Um, this is the person who has uh, buried their faces in the Dragon Age and uh, Dragon Age books. Has several dozen different dozen characters made crafted in the games, uh, each exploring different options. They moderate forums about Dragon Age discussions, etc., etc. As I raise my hand, s- <laughs> <laughs> uh, these are the people who will stop a game to correct a small factoid that the other players at the table likely had no idea was incorrect. Again, I raise my hand. <laughs> I now, try not to be a jerk about it, but I sure. I am guilty of doing that. I try not to be a jerk, but I, I back when uh, I've done that. Back when I was playing a lot of Star Wars, I, I, I think I did we that all do, and that's and part of it is part of it is from that zeal. I mean, the reason we're playing Dragon Age and not D and D or Pathfinder or some other fantasy RPG is because we like the world. We like Dragon Age. There are any number of other mm-hmm. systems we could use to play mm-hmm. generic fantasy role-playing game. We're playing Dragon Age because we like Dragon Age. That said, there has to be a line. And right. if, as, as the GM, your player does not need to know the entire history of the Templar Order. Even if they're investigating a big Templar mystery, they don't need hundreds of years of Dragon Age history. Um, I had a player in one of the one-shots I've run previously who was notorious for this, and she she was the only other person who had played any of the Dragon Age games at the table aside from myself and my wife, and I was explaining to a player what a Templar is in this world and how they relate to mages, and this uh, this continuity expert just wanted to go into, you know, well, the Templars did this, and then there's this other group called the Seekers of Truth, and I'm like, they don't <laughs> oh, need man. to know any of that. Templars are guardians for mages, and they have the ability to negate magic. That's about all you need. They don't get along very well. No, no, they, they really don't. But, yeah. <laughs> but just a ma- just a way of uh, moderate temper mm-hmm. your temper your fanboys. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I like. I hope at least I've not done that where it's picking every little tiny thing and making sure everybody knows that I know this. That's um, definitely the point where it go- where it can go too yeah. far, and and um, I hope I haven't done that. You're still in your group, and it sounds like you're still in good graces with your group, so you're probably doing fine. (laughs) You sound like you're probably running as the positive side of a a continuity expert, is that they can be invaluable to running a memorable game that helps everybody feel like they've really stepped into the world, because you lend your expertise. You tell everybody, and so you let folks know, you know, this is how it was portrayed, uh, so this is how we can choose to portray it or explore that particular uh, portrayal and whether or not that's good for us or how our characters perceive it. So it can it can be very helpful. Yeah, my, my DM, Derek, he does come to me like when he's planning out missions and he does ask me questions about different things that I hope I'm helpful with the answers, but that's kind of where my expertise in in the um, canon lies with him in our group. 
and it's it can be very very uh, a huge boon for GMs and another play and uh, fellow players at the table to have someone like you sitting around who they can turn to and be like, um, "What's Navara nobility like?" And you can turn to them, head in your hand, and be like, "Let me tell you something." <laughs> Let me tell you about the Pentagast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, right, and it's but the, the definitely the key difference there is that folks are coming to you and asking for your expertise, and you're and you're lending it, you know, when it's requested or when uh, right. maybe something's fixing, and you know what can fix it. Uh, but the line gets crossed when it's not solicited, and you're stopping games dead in their tracks to correct folks on factoids. Uh, you should never be doing that during a game. It, it it's more acceptable to do it after the game. But even then, the GM may want to run it this particular way, and some for some folks, that's that's not acceptable, and that can that can sour a lot of feelings. Uh, it can suck the fun out of a game, and um, yeah. So uh, this kind of bad situation can be helped by uh, communication very early on, and especially letting folks know how closely we're cleaving to canon on this uh, and maybe double checking that everyone's okay with that. All things in moderation. For sure. <laughs> there is a time and place for the lore dump. It's not in the middle <laughs> of combat. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I, I don't do that. Well, that, that was, uh, that was Marie. Oi. <laughs> <laughs> I may have. I'm sure Derek will tell me. Yes, you do. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I think I recall a couple of moments, probably, I think it was during Gen Con when I had to correct some folks on things in Star Wars a long time ago. I, 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 I like to think I've grown out of it by now. <laughs> I sure hope so. Yeah. So it's a, so that's a big subject and I'm, I'm glad I could get lots of folks on to, to come with me. And I'm, I'm Toby, if you're listening, I'm really sorry we couldn't keep you on for very long, uh, it was running a little late. We were probably keeping you up pretty late in the night. I hope you can join us later on. Um, but thank you both for coming on. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. It's always good to have a lot more expertise because uh, we're 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 living that kind of Dragon Age RPG uh, reality where we've got like one or two or maybe even three people who are really like this game and they have all the books and they want to play and they got campaign ideas and everyone else is like, what's Dragon Age? <laughs> yeah. Just, just got to wait for the next there. book to come or the next game to come out. And it'll, it'll refresh mm-hmm. everyone's mind nice and nice and clearly. There we go. Let's start uh, bringing all that Dragon Age merch into Think Geek. Then uh, I can start wandering around Think Geek and be like, "Hey, hey, have you heard about the role playing game? It's super cool." <laughs> Incidentally, here's my business card. Yep. <laughs> I still got to make those for Gen Con. I was so upset that I didn't have them last year, and I still don't Vista have them print. yet. I've only got like twenty days. Vista Print. Uh, Vista Print. Go quick and cheap. That's where I get mine. All right. <laughs> All right. Sweet. I'll have to go to Vistaprint. This I'm going to remember that. Sweet. I'm so jealous you both are going to Gen Con. Oh, you're not going to Gen Con? No, I'm not going to Gen Con. Have you been to Gen Con no, before? No, I've not, but I Honestly, really want to. I like Gen cool. Con 
well enough. I like Origins so much better. It's so such. Yeah. It still has that big con feel, but it uh, but it still has a ton mm-hmm. of games. It's easier to get around, and the food is immaculate. Best fried chicken I I've ever had was was this been... past year at, at Origins, <laughs> a little place called the Eagle North on High Street. Fantastic. Nice. Blow your mind. I've been to I've been to Gary Con. Uh, I can't say I'm not Gary Con. Uh, where is that? Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. It's it's mostly about Dungeons and Dragons because it's um about Gary Gygax. Ah. Um, but they do. There are some Dragon Age games that get played, and right. you know, it was a good Dayton time. Dayton has its own convention see. now, a Catacon from the RPG Academy. Just saying, you know. Mm. <laughs> Not saying, just saying, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, we are getting, we are like knee deep in con season oh, these yeah. days, so we'll probably be hearing more about these cons as we go on. Uh, for those of you out there listening, thanks for listening, of course. If you like what we do, please consider supporting us on our new Patreon. You not only get double votes on later episodes, but you can get the show a week early. If we get enough support, we can meet you with a Discord channel, start inviting people onto the show with us, become a weekly show, or even start a new show for other age games. Although we might do that last one anyway, because mm. we're, we're I'm, I'm making my own fantasy universe, and it's, it's really cool. I'm excited. I've, nice. I've, I've, my whole GMing career has been running games in other people's settings. I've never written my own, so this will be this will be exciting. Fun times, especially when they get that uh, community creator program going. So, uh, anything that you folks out there can contribute is appreciated. You can find a link to our Patreon on our blog and in the post for this show. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on our social media. Feel free to leave a comment or a question. Even tell us how your Dragon Age games are going. Feel free to comment on our show on SoundCloud, and if you can, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. It does help us out. Uh, but thank you all so much for listening to the One is a Thetis podcast. We're all having a good time here. Uh, this is Ren, wishing lots of sixes on that dragon die. This is Andy, keeping the dread wolf off your trail. And this is Leona. May the creators guide you on your way. Thank you so much for listening to the One of the podcast again. You all have a good afternoon, evening, whatever it is. Cheers. Bye. Bye.